We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. By now, longtime listeners of Watch with Jen and readers of my work at my site, filmintuition.com, as well as a number of outlets over the years, are very aware of the fact that I am a huge fan of character actors, those chameleons who like to embrace and bring to life flawed individuals and seem to disappear into whatever role they're playing. They're the kind of performers who don't worry too much about things like box office success, vanity, or likability. And while Dennis Hopper is a particularly curious subject, since much like his good friend Jack Nicholson, he has no problem picking up the torch of scenery chewers of the past, like James Cagney, when it's necessary. If you write off Hopper, though, as merely a showman based on his turns in movies like Apocalypse Now or Blue Velvet, without looking deeper you might miss the humanity, pathos, desperation, and surprising clashes of tenderness he's able to bring to not only those roles, but especially quieter ones, like in The American Friend or Carried Away. In our first Watch with Jen Spotlight on actors, I talked to an incredible roster of past guests one-on-one about their impressions and memories of Dennis Hopper as an actor and filmmaker over the years, as well as asking them to go deeper into some of their favorite Hopper films and performances. Initially conceived as just one ensemble episode, I wound up with so much amazing audio that it will be three parts. In order to add a little variety to the proceedings, however, I have also cut in excerpts from interviews with Dennis Hopper, voiced by yours truly, that I thought would give our subject an opportunity to weigh in as well. One of my pet peeves as a podcast listener is not being able to identify who is speaking in ensemble episodes, particularly when I dig what they're saying so much that I would like to look up the guests and check out their work. So to remedy this, and so you can check out these amazing people, 
you will hear me state their names throughout these episodes. But I wanted to begin by introducing who you will hear in part one overall and giving you some biographical details. This episode covers the mystique and appeal of Dennis Hopper and focuses on the first part of his career up through the early 80s. While I did largely try to go in chronological order here, sometimes the normal flow of conversation and the films my guests selected had us jumping around here and there in time. In alphabetical order, the guests that you're going to be listening to in part one are as follows. Mitchell Beaupre, who is the senior editor and podcast co-host at Letterboxd, as well as a critic, interviewer, and essayist at Paste Magazine, The Film Stage, and more. Duncan Birmingham, the writer-director of Who Invited Them, Blunt Talk, and Marin. He is also the author of the short story collection, The Cult in My Garage. William Boyle is a novelist of such works as Shoot the Moonlight Out, City of Margins, A Friend is a Gift You Give Yourself, The Lonely Witness, and more. Elizabeth Cantwell is a poet and a teacher, as well as a writer and editor at Brightwall Dark Room, the online film journal. S.A. Cosby is a New York Times bestselling author of Blacktop Wasteland, Razorblade Tears, My Darkest Prayer, and the upcoming All the Sinners Bleed. Jordan Harper is a screenwriter and producer on such shows as The Mentalist, Gotham, and Hightown, as well as the Edgar Award-winning author of She Rides Shotgun, Last King of California, and the brand new novel Everybody Knows. Blake Howard is a writer and the brilliant podcaster behind One Heat Minute Productions, currently releasing such shows as diverse as Pod Thomas Anderson, Miami Nice, and Too Much Movie. Mike Wiley is a teacher and author of Truth and Consequences, game shows in fiction and film, conversations with Steve Erickson, and next year's anticipated book, David Lynch's Intertextual Cinema. Travis Woods is a film essayist and writer-editor at Brightwell Darkroom, as well as the host of the podcast Increment Vice. Travis is currently writing a book on Brian De Palma. Now let's begin with some thoughts on Dennis Hopper's early years, including what it is that makes him so compelling. Duncan Birmingham. There are so many Dennis Hoppers, um, and I think that's why I'm, I find him so interesting. There always seems to be new new Dennis Hoppers, at least for me to discover. I mean, for so many, so many years as a kid, for me, Dennis Hopper started with Easy Rider. And I, I, you know, as a kid, a teenager loving that movie, I thought he was that guy. <laughs> Only years later uh, did I put together, oh, this is the, the Dennis Hopper and the same actor in Cool Hand Luke and in, uh, in Giant. And then all these kind of old older old hollywood movies became before he became the you know the poster poster boy for the new hollywood um and and in that vein and in the vein of discovering new dennis hoppers i just read that book everybody thought we were crazy by mark rozo um and i just finished it uh, a week or two ago about uh, him and brooke uh, uh hayward and their marriage in the 60s and the the book was to me a, a real revelation. It's it's basically a portrait of their marriage, 
uh, and, and uses the two of them as a as a lens to view the 60s as a whole, it wasn't as much, I expected it to be a lot more uh, get into the easy easy rider of it, uh, but that yeah. doesn't come to the very end of the book. That's a very 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 small part of it, and it's really about you know Dennis Hopper as like a a James Dean you know buddy and 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 uh, protege about a, him going from like Hollywood studio kind of golden boy for a red hot minute into this uh, unemployable rebel. His photography, which is so amazing, which I never really appreciated. And and even more so, and the book is this is mostly the, the the gist and the bulk of the book is him being a champion of like the avant garde and being this like yes like foreign film finger mm-hmm. on the pulse of like everything yeah. uh, pop art and having this house in Hollywood that was like a a real uh, a gathering place for all these cool uh, pop artists and and cultural icons and everyone from like the Hell's Angels to Andy Warhol and, and just. <laughs> What a Zelig figure that he was and his wife uh, was during those those years. So that that just made me love Hopper even more. And so he was he was top of mind uh, when you told me you were doing this episode. So I was I was uh, excited. Next up, Elizabeth Cantwell. I will tell you a funny anecdote, which is that I texted my husband, Chris, before this and said, hey, is there any like Dennis Hopper's story that I should tell to Jen when I talk to her and I'll credit you. Um, And he just was texting me and he said, oh, you can bring up how he was actually really high when he shot the New Orleans graveyard scene in um, Easy Rider. Yeah. And I was like, oh, ha ha. And then he texted me back and said, okay, funny story. I just texted that to our older son's baseball coach. (laughs) because he was he was texting a baseball coach at the same oh, time no. and so texted the baseball coach that uh Dennis, Dennis Hopper was Hopper. high and easy rider and, and he sent me a screenshot where the coach just responds like cool man like <laughs> I don't know what's going on so uh, oh no so I so, might have gotten the Cantwell's a little bit in trouble with the baseball coach today sorry about that okay I think I think he learned a new fact he learned he a did. new fact about Dennis Hopper He's going to um, pull that out at his next event. Yeah. <laughs> Jordan Harper. I think that he is somebody who, in his best roles, tends to have a layer of skin peeled off of him. And <laughs> so he reacts to the world in these great big ways. And and there are, you know, he's, again, like to, to, to invert the metaphor, he's also somebody that you can feel the oceans inside him. You know, there's very little, I guess both of those, I would say there's very little barriers between him and and the world. And that comes out both in how he reacts to people and how he puts himself forward. You know, I, I think the cliche or the easy way to say it is he's crazy and and that's fun to watch. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot going on there. And 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 when you look at his his range of work and his body of work, it's um it's varied and, and, you know, he's not the kind of guy who's going to, oh, and Dennis Hopper as Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. you know, he is not, he's not one of those type of great actors who can do anything. He can, you know, he's not Gary Oldman, for instance, but, like, <laughs> um, but what he does is so valuable, which is, is, you know, as a, like an early, uh, you know, uh, practitioner of the method or, you know, uh, you can really feel that he got a lot out of that style of acting, that 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 laying it all out there. Um, yeah. And uh, and he's also he is a um, a person who hungers. Yeah. Um, and I remember I was actually from him in an interview 
uh, and I'm going to muck up the details because I didn't research this at all. But um, but I remember <laughs> reading he was talking about learning from James Dean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I believe it was James Dean who said to him a thing that is also a great piece of writing advice, which is just make your character want something, even if it's a glass of water. And his characters are always in want of more than a glass of water, typically. But um, but again, they wear it all out there that you can see that hunger. You can see that desire that is that is uh, unquenchable and always churning in in almost all his characters, even some of the more like reserved or buttoned down ones that you see him do. There's always that underneath. Mm hmm. Yeah, 100%. I love that. Always make them want something because want is a big Dennis Hopper trait throughout all of his films. And you can just see that in every scene. Next up, Travis Woods. I think what makes him so compelling, and I don't think I'm uh, splitting the atom or anything by saying this. I don't think I'm telling anyone anything that they, they don't already know. But I think what makes Dennis Hopper so compelling especially in this era in which any celebrity creative is so kind of banded down and innocuous with an, uh, an army of a PR team uh, doing Vanity Fair YouTube video tours of their home and things like that. <laughs> Dennis Hopper was, for both good and bad, was a fucking maniac. And yes. A deeply creative fucking maniac, but a fucking maniac nonetheless. And I think what made him interesting is that he was something that most, I feel like most creatives, well-known creatives uh, in our day and age aren't. He was unpredictable. Mm-hmm. He was just genuinely unpredictable, both as a, uh, a performer. I mean, I don't think anyone knew what they were getting when he came back from his hiatus in 1986 and shotgunned performances at us as varied as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, River's Edge, Blue Velvet, and Hoosiers. He had all four of those in him. But like Blue Velvet alone is just such a startling uh, moment in cinema uh, where he just slaps you upside the head with this performance uh, that you don't see coming, that even someone as uh, strange as David Lynch did not see coming. Mm-hmm. And he's just so wildly unpredictable. And, and, and as I said, not just as a, not just as a performer, uh, but as a filmmaker, uh, that he would go uh, from something as radical and uh, varied as let's say, you know, something like easy writer uh, to something like the movie we're going to talk about today, the Mm -hmm. hotspot. The hotspot is such kind of a, for all of its wildness of, of plot and uh, sexuality. It's, it's also a very, a very formally composed kind of classicist film uh, you know, a throwback to, you know, 50s noir. And then you look at something like Easy Rider, which is just so almost formless in how it is exploding in every direction at once, um, making its varied and contradictory and fascinating and exciting statements about about himself and about America, that he can just 
traverse that arc. I don't think anyone could have predicted that. And that is, again, I think that's what makes him such a fascinating figure in the American film canon is he's just, he was just really goddamn weird. Um, and you watch a movie like the American friend, uh, where yeah. he plays, uh, his, his take on Tom Ripley, which I think is really, is actually really, really fascinating. An American cowboy. Um, mm-hmm. I love you that watch him, yeah, you watch him in that movie and I feel like you watch that and you go, and he's very kind of cool and calm and controlled and, uh, filled with, you know, this kind of like sardonic melancholy. And you watch that and you think, yeah, that's who Dennis Hopper is to me. But then you watch a film that was released two years later, Apocalypse Now, where he's out of his fucking mind. You know, zap him with your sirens, man. Zap him with your sirens. Um, <laughs> I'm an American. Watch, yeah. Yeah. I'm an Ameri- yeah, I love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> you watch that and you're like, you can just as easily go, this is who Dennis Hopper is to me. This, this fucking, this, this maniacal Mm-hmm. Uh, sheened in coke sweat madman and that's who he is and then you watch something just a couple of years later like his performance as the alcoholic uh, father in Rumblefish and you're like no this is Dennis Hopper it, my, my point being is he, he, you know that, that, that cliched phrase that someone contains multitudes Dennis Hopper contained multitudes I mean that's part partially it's because I think he was just a fucking madman but again because he contained those multitudes, you could never predict which hopper you were going to get. And at least as far as the hoppers we saw on screen, you know, I, I don't know if I would want to be his pal in, in, in real life. Yeah. But the, the man you saw on screen was you never knew which hopper you were going to get. But each one was very fascinating and very compelling and had really interesting stories to tell as a director or performances to give as an actor. And he just was one of those creatives, one of those performers that it was almost, he, he's almost scary to watch as, as cheesy as that sounds, because you don't know which hopper you're going to get. And there's a, there's a thrill That's in very that. That's true. Yeah. There's a thrill in that, you know, just as much as you watch him in something like Speed, you're like, okay, you know, this is, yep. I, I totally buy him as Howard Payne. This, this just, this oh, he's scenery, scenery chewing Yep. eight-fingered maniac but mm-hmm. then just the year before he plays such a sweet role as uh uh clifford uh clarence worley's father in true romance and you mm-hmm. totally believe him as this old sad sack who just really loves his kid and is willing to die for him and then yep. that same year he's also playing king koopa in the fucking super mario brothers movie <laughs> he just there was kind of nothing there was nothing he couldn't do and i you could not predict him i feel like there are so many actors and there are so many directors you sit down and you watch them today either on tv or or one of their movies and you kind of know what you're gonna get even if it's something satisfying you kind of know what you're gonna get like let's for for instance uh a mutual friend of ours myself and uh jordan harper we recently went to go see the new john wick movie and uh-huh. we did not we did not go see the John Wick movie though because we thought Keanu Reeves was going to do something completely new with mm-hmm. the the art form of performance. And that's not a critique. I think I, I think Keanu Reeves is an amazing oh, actor. Yeah. He's a deep, mm-hmm. deeply underrated actor. And I'll say right now, his performance is Ortiz, the dog face boy, and <laughs> I know you're gonna I know you're gonna disagree because I know you don't like that movie. 
but it's a really it, 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 it's, it's a live wire performance. But anyway, my point is, it's not like we expected going into that movie, sitting down, that Keanu was going to wow us with some wild ass left turn of the performance we did not see coming. We you watch a performance by him, you kind of know what you're going to get. And with Dennis Hopper, you pick any one of his movies at random, and then you pick a second movie at random to make a Dennis Hopper double feature. And I guarantee you the performances in either film will be so diametrically opposed to one another. It'll be like a, a, a matter-antimatter collision. You know, you, you, you pick, pick his kind of quiet, reserved role as Jordan Benedict in Giant. And then... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hold that up to his his very, very entitled uh, 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 kind of fascist performance in George Romero's Land of the Dead. It, he just he traverses such an arc of humanity and such a spectrum of of, of so many spectrums of sanity in his work that he's he's never not fascinating, even in a bad movie or in a bad performance. Uh, he's never you can never not watch him. You can never pull your eyes from him. And I think that that makes him something very special, especially now. Next up, S.A. Cosby. I think the main thing that people get when they see a Dennis Hopper performance, you know, it's not the realism. It's not the, you know, the method acting of, say, Pacino or De Niro. It's not even like the old school of uh, the, you know, of Olivier or, or someone of that nature. It's this raw, wild id that exists on screen. This sort of untamable humanity. It's not even masculinity. It's, it's, his mm-hmm. acting transcends that. He's he's this force of nature that's unleashed on the on the screen. And regardless of what role he's playing, um, you always can see the madness behind his eyes, even when he's playing something fairly traditional uh he just has this sort of manic energy that makes him magnetic that makes him just you can't take your eyes off him mitchell beaupre yeah i think i mean hopper there's so many different things that make him compelling i think that something that i really appreciate about him is i feel like a lot of times you get like there are character actors who are like the kinds of actors who really disappear into every role and you can't really like associate with any kind of personality, like distinct personality traits or anything that they carry over. And then there are other actors who I think are people that you know so well that you're kind of like going in having a relationship with them already and they have to kind of like weave like with that but it still is like you know like if you're watching Cary Grant you know that you're watching Cary Grant like in a movie Mm -hmm. and that's part of the appeal for it and I think Hopper is really exciting because he's somebody who threads a line between those two things where I think that he understands especially the further that his career went on he understands that like the audience kind of has a relationship with him to a degree like we know the behind the scenes stuff with him we know a lot of his like troubles going into certain roles but then he also can utilize that relationship and that understanding that the audience has of who he is in really exciting ways where he is still a character actor because yeah. you watch something like Hoosiers and that feels like a completely different guy than the guy in Speed but you still are watching it with the the understanding that it's like Dennis Hopper portraying these guys and i think that that's something like he has that understanding of who he is and he draws so much from 
that outside source from like what he's gone through in his life. And he can just pull the most like deep cut stuff from his own life into like very specific roles that he's playing. And I think that that's something, especially like reading and listening to him talk about his process and how he comes from like Strasbourg and the method and everything and how he brings up these like subconscious things that he didn't even know were inside of him to give him that sense memory to get through a different scene. I think that he's just like such an intelligent dude and he brings it into every single role. From Dennis Hopper Interviews, edited by Nick Dawson. Quote, Henry Hathaway taught me a great lesson, a lesson I don't think I was able to accept until that point in my life, but one I've never forgotten. Don't fool around with the director. He's the man in charge, and he gets what he wants. Just imagine what a mixture of styles and effects you would get if everyone was doing his own thing as an actor in a movie, what confusion. I love Henry now. I made true grit for him, and there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. I used to have a lot of problems as a person, but I think I've worked most of them out. I had an enormous capacity for hate, which I think I'm better able to control now. I used to go to parties, have a few drinks, and begin to denounce people there whom I felt were incompetent at their jobs making movies. Now I may feel the same, but I can control myself. I can play the game the way it has to be. I've talked to analysts a couple of times, but I never went into psychoanalysis. I never felt I wanted to take any criticism. I've always wanted to be a director, ever since I walked onto a set when I was 18 years old. That's when I realized that an actor couldn't fulfill himself on film, that the director had complete creative control. But until Easy Rider, I didn't have the chance. Most of the movies I've had to work in represent the kind of picture I'm fighting against. Easy Rider shows the violence underneath everything, how we talk freedom and democracy, but can't bear anyone different from ourselves the motorcycles, those beautiful motorcycles in the movie really represent the American creation. But the two riders skimming across the country don't know what they're doing. They've blown it, really copped out. Like their visit to the commune. The people are starving. Someone has shot a horse for food. And Captain America keeps saying, beautiful, beautiful, they'll make it, Billy. But they won't make it. He's got $50,000 in his gas tank. None of that's meant to be real. It's all symbolic, even though motivations are credible on a realistic level. But he never takes out $5 to give to the people to buy food. Captain America is Wyatt Earp, the sheriff riding the range. I'm Billy the Kid, representing the outlaw element. At the same time, whatever Captain America does is all right with me. I'd lay down my life for him. But the two riders never become involved. They're sick too, just like the establishment. They won't take responsibility for what they see around them. They have the wrong goals, false values. End quote. Next, William Boyle. For me, he's he's one of those actors that um, at a really formative time for me as a viewer, just I started 
paying attention to and just was kind of blown away by. I mean, of course, I saw, I was trying to think of what would have been the first movie I saw him in. Um, almost certainly, I guess Hoosiers would have been one of the first. Um, and then, you know, I saw Blue Velvet when I was 12 and it changed my whole world. Um, so that was, that was big. And then, um, I mean, like Nicolas Cage, he's kind of somebody who just, even when a movie was not good or, or terrible, it was like always going to be compelling just to watch Hopper. Um, and there's a whole lot of those from like the nineties that he's in that like the movie's not good, but he's always doing something weird. And, yeah. um, so, you know, he was just in those formative years for me, he was, he was just a major presence and somebody I was, was drawn to and somebody who just, you know, had so many memorable scenes and, and moments. And then of course, I think, you know, once I, once I started digging around and probably, I guess by my teens, I would have seen Easy Rider and, you know, went back and saw giant and saw you know i was like oh shit he's in rebel without a i mean it's just yeah that's his debut it's insane um it's just an insane career and he's somebody i've always responded to and and somebody you know i think um now i think i in the last 10 years or so i would say is has become one of my favorite directors um you know i don't know if i recognize that early on but um but definitely in the last 10 or so years, rewatching Easy Rider and then watching the last movie and, and rewatching Out of the Blue and um, and even some of his later stuff, I'm fascinated by Hotspot. And, um, yeah, Hotspot is great. Mm-hmm. Hotspot's great. And, and that movie Backtrack, a.k.a. I Catch was going Fire. to rewatch it because I remember kind of <laughs> liking it. I know he disowned it because yeah. they cut it, but uh, without yeah. his input, but. You know, I I remember finding it interesting. Yeah, it's I need to revisit. Super weird. It. I mean, it's super. Yeah, apparently very there's apparently there's like a his cut was like three hours of it, but um, <laughs> I think he I think he was okay. His name is back on the the director's cut of it, which is what you can see now. And I think Kino Lorber is releasing it soon. And I think oh, that's good. the I think that's the director's cut. There's like the Alan Smithy cut, and then there's the Dennis Hopper cut, and he's okay with it. And it's a super weird movie. I mean, it's just one of the most batshit wild movies i've ever seen um but so i mean so he's always doing interesting weird weird stuff and um somebody i love reading about you know if there's a book about dennis hopper i'll get it somebody i I love you know just kind of watching documentaries about listening to anything i can um so yeah i mean so many so many killer performances memorable performances weird little films I love that you kind of wanted to focus on his directorial efforts. Um, yeah. You know, Easy Rider, of course, is a groundbreaking work, but uh, he followed that up with uh, the film that kind of got him kicked out of Hollywood for the <laughs> second time after, you know, being sort of, uh, you'll never work in this town again, blacklisted by Hathaway when he uh, did 85 takes and, you know, his method approach kind of dragged the film to a halt um, with Henry Hathaway and then Sons of Katie Elder kind of got him back in Hollywood's good graces. He was on his best behavior. And that's where he was when he had the idea for the last movie. So talk to me about the last movie. This was the first time I had seen the film. 
I didn't love it, but I was fascinated by it. it. Has some gorgeous sequences. There's a lot of really interesting stuff at play. I really like the music. There's a lot in this film that I admire, but overall, I'm not in love with it. But I know it was quite a disaster. There's there's legendary stories. There's a really good Esquire article online about the making of the film. That's bananas. But yeah. talk to me about your experience with the last movie. Oh man, where where do I even start with the last movie? I, I have no <laughs> idea really where to start. I mean, you know, it's definitely. Um, I mean, one thing about it that I can say for sure is that I think the first time I saw it would have been like kind of a grungy VHS copy of it, and now it's available in a in a you know this gorgeous restoration. And it is it is a really beautiful movie to look at. I think. I mean, there's mm-hmm. stunning some stunning shots in it, and cinematography by Laszlo Kovacs, and um, and just really r- really gorgeous film. I think um, it's also a really I think a really literary film. Um, it is. I, I think it's a, a movie that I I probably didn't like that much, or I kind of felt alienated by the first couple of times I watched it. And I think it it's, you know, um, every subsequent viewing for me has, you know, has um, made me like it more and made me feel like uh, it's more accessible than I thought it was, that it's more um, just a lot, a lot going on that I think maybe I wasn't, I wasn't catching the first couple of times I saw it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated, but it also, you know, rewatching it this time, I'll say, um, knowing that he was so influenced by Godard for it, um, you know, I think, and having just rewatched like 10 Godard movies after he, after he died, I really saw that influence in a, in a major way. Um, yes. You know, just kind of. The experimental things he was doing, yeah. you know, scene missing and jump cuts and. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's in the, the. I think the story is is brilliant. And apparently the the original script by Stuart Stern is is amazing. I've never read it. Um and I think the story is just brilliant. And I think, you know, the problems people have with it, I think, come down more to the editing and these kind of wild experimental narrative choices he makes. But the straightforward story is really great. It's a good idea, right? Yeah. It's, it's explores what happens after a film crew leaves town sort of you know a western is made he's he plays a stuntman and you know that does kind of happen it's sort of a theater troupe mentality of you're a troubadour you travel around you're a wandering nomad an actor somebody working on a film set and then you leave town and what happens to these people left behind all the little romances that strike up and the different things for sure Right. And yeah, and the townspeople, you know, the townspeople start um, acting a movie with fake cameras, but the violence is, it's the opposite of the movie where the violence that's just been made, where the violence is not real and the cameras are. And then when the townspeople start making their version of the movie, the cameras are fake and the violence is real. It's such a, it's such a, it's such a great setup. And he's, he's great in it, I think. I mean, it's a great performance. There's a, a couple of really stunning moments. It's really, I think this is true in a lot of his films, um, mm-hmm. maybe because I, I appreciate this as somebody who, who likes to um, read books and watch films about quote unquote unlikable characters. I think Copper was never afraid to do no. that. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this this character is not 
at any moment, not really somebody who's likable. Um, even even the scene where he's crying. I mean, there are moments of, of empathy, I guess, with him. But he's, yeah, he's like kind of a, we see it a little bit with the when the priest enters and he's sort of he yeah. calls him sir a bunch of times, and you know we see little flashes of humanity and empathy, but. Yeah, this isn't someone you want to hang with. No, he's a yeah, he's an ugly character, and that's I mean that's something Hopper was I mean did throughout his career. He played ugly characters, you know. I mean he did it. You know, I don't know if anybody ever did it better than he did. You know, out of the blue, he's an ugly character. And, oh my gosh! I mean, yes. you know, in all in so many of these these films, he he plays that part. So uh, that's something I love about it. And then the other thing I love about it, and this is true of of um, Easy Rider and Out of the Blue as well. Uh, I mean, I think he was you know, incredible at using music in his films. Um, that's Very something much. that always, always draws me in. And those three movies in particular, but. Incredible I mean, music. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you Easy Rider is, I guess, everybody knows that one and knows about how, but I don't think people talk about the last movie and how, how he uses music in this film um, mm-hmm. as kind of the, the beating heart of it enough. Um, and, you know, it's Christopherson's first movie, I think, first time he's he's in a movie, I believe. Um, yeah, and what's fascinating is Phil Spector at one point was, yeah, yeah was involved heavily in the film. Yeah. I mean, a lot, so many people are involved. involved in <laughs> so being many collaborators, friends, people kept flying out to Peru. It was crazy. Yes. Yeah, and then, you know, and part of, I mean, definitely part of, I mean, I, I actually, I, I really love the film, and as I said I've, I've grown to love it more and more with each viewing but but definitely part of the appeal of this movie has always been the mythology around it um as yeah. much as the movie itself i think so you know him him holding up in in new mexico and editing it for a year and bringing in yodorowsky and whoever else to do edits with him and um just that that whole um that whole kind of mystique uh, was was a major part of i think what what drew me into it but um but yeah i mean once i i think once i saw the restoration i was just like man this is this is incredible um it's just a, a really a film one of those films that i don't know that it's as difficult as people think or say it is um but it is it is complex and it is a film it's that, challenging yeah, yeah you have to meet it halfway for sure and yeah and it's a film that's i mean it's a film that stays with me it's just one of those movies i think about a lot so even if it's not you know i think it's messiness is part of its appeal for me and, and part of what kind of gets under my skin about it so um, yeah. yeah yeah it's an interesting one for sure from dennis hopper interviews edited by nick dawson Quote, look, I really dig the work of people like Eisenstein, Renoir, Ford, Bergman, Bellini, Truffaut, and Godard. You look at their films and something's always happening. They're always showing you new things. And that's what I want to do as a director. Yeah, I want to direct, but I want to direct my own movies. And it's going to be difficult for me to get financing because of the last movie. If I can come up with another easy rider story, it probably won't be a problem. But if I have an aesthetic trip that looks as if it might be a commercial sequel to the last movie, well, forget it. 
right now, it seems to me the best way I can put together money to make my films is to act in entertaining movies and save up enough to finance them myself. So at this point, I want to begin building a name for myself as an actor, which is something I really haven't done. If I'm going to continue to act in my own films, films that I'll write and direct, I would like to think people will want to see Dennis Hopper act. Audiences don't care who's written or directed a film nearly as much as who's up there on the screen. So to give my own movies a better shot, I'm going to have to start working in a lot more films than I have. End quote. Next up, Travis Woods. The film Kid Blue is a lot of fun. It's a really, really great and strange and funny and kind of surprisingly homoerotic buddy comedy Western from the early 70s. Um, and uh, listen to this cast list, because this might be the most 1970s cast list of all time. Dennis Hopper, Warren Oates, Peter Boyle, uh, wow. and, and Ben Johnson, which oh is this, it's it's like... It's like a Venn, it's like a weird Venn diagram of yes. every uh, 70s dude uh, movie ever. But anyway, it, it's a really odd, odd, odd film. And uh, Hopper gives a very typically Hopper, typically live wire performance in it. Next, Mike Miley. I guess it's the same things a lot of people would see in him. It's intensity and unpredictability um, that I guess sometimes blurs into like a caricature. And then other times is like just exactly the jolt of danger that a, a movie needs or something like that. And so um, and then as I've gotten older, I guess I've just been um you know, drawn to the kind of the weirder stuff that he yes. or, the, or the less predictable stuff that he's been in, particularly in this like early, late 70s, early 80s period, like right when he's um, kind of hitting bottom and starting to get cleaned mm-hmm. up. Um, I mean, particularly something like Out of the Blue, I think is just um, that's blown my socks off a couple of times when I've seen it. And then um, the other one I have a real soft spot for with him is River's Edge, just because that is so completely bonkers of a, of a performance in a movie. Um, But yeah, he's just been, um, you know, I I think he's always been a fascinating, I mean, you can't not watch him when he's, when he's in a movie. Yeah. He is instantly compelling. And I think you hit the nail on the head about that danger and that allure in Hopper and the films that you selected that we were going to go into a little bit are the American friend and Rumblefish. And that is kind of the peak of he had been a legend with easy rider lived larger than life. And then, you know, was kind of a mess and <laughs> sort of uh, believed his own hype and became his own thing. And then he started to do these really weird character pieces uh, for the love of filmmaking and his passion for these people. You know, he is somebody who in the fifties started out as a bit player and an actor in movies with like James Dean. And so it is cool to see him kind of honoring those people like Nicholas Ray, who's in uh, the American friend and also then reuniting with Francis Ford Coppola, who he was in Mm -hmm. Apocalypse Now, um, his film with Rumblefish. And I think, you know, 
what's wrong with a cowboy in Hamburg? As soon as you see him <laughs> wearing that cowboy hat in The American Friend, I love a good cowboy on film. I'm a huge Western fan. And when it's Hopper, I mean, double that. Yeah. 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 Oh, and, and I guess something else that you just said reminded me um, of like, yeah, the fact that he's acting alongside James Dean and Rock Hudson and, yes. you know, people like he spans. I mean, he's basically from the, the classic studio era, the tail end of that. And he goes all the way into uh, basically almost into the Marvel era, his career. He I does. mean, we, yeah. we are looking at like basically you look at his work, you're looking at kind of a compendium of American cinema from from the studio era to to the conglomerate era, right? I mean, yeah. like he, co- he covers the all of it and is in, and I guess what's interesting too, he's in noteworthy films in every section. It's not just like, oh yeah, he was a bit guy there. I mean, yeah, sure, he was a bit player, but it was in Rebel Without a Cause. Exactly, and <laughs> right? giant, like my yeah. goodness, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, so he's prominent kind of all the way yeah. through, which is cool. Um, Very but, cool. Yes, yeah, but sorry, that was like... um I guess a little off the off American friend, but, um, but yeah, like, um, I mean, with, with American friend, like, yeah, the, 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 I mean, the cowboy and Hamburg thing is, is perfect because that's like what the movie kind of, it just become it is as weird and appropriate and awesome as that sort of image. Um, and I remember being really disappointed with this movie the first time I saw it. Like, I think oh, when really? I was in, yeah, when I was in, it was either like in college or right out of college. And I was starting to like get into Vim Vendors and I thought, oh, this movie's got to be it, right? This is, um, and I think what happened was I was expecting, okay, I learned this is the movie, like Dennis Hopper went straight from the set of Apocalypse Now to go play Tom Ripley in this movie. And I'm thinking, yeah. oh, wow, this is going to be bonkers, right? I'm ex- I was expecting, okay. I was so expecting, like, yeah. yeah, I was expecting like, the, oh man, I'm Tom Ripley, you know, like this sort of weird. Um, <laughs> I am an American. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. I'm a cowboy in Hamburg, man. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and it's not that at all. No. And I mean, and, and all for the better. It's quieter. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so mm-hmm. much. And, and and that's sort of it took me a while. It took me like a second viewing, I think, to realize that um, this is not the like Apocalypse Now, Dennis Hopper. Um, but it's also he's not his Ripley is not the like the cool customer that we no, expect. It's uh, not or, or yeah. Celine Dillon or Matt Damon. No. Yeah. And, and it's like he's he's sort of like winds up being it like it winds up being way more disturbing because he's kind of both um, at the same time. And you never know like which version of Ripley is going to show up. Is it going to be like the clean cut looking guy who does all the art stuff? Or is it going to be that disheveled, like lonely man in a room talking into a tape recorder and like taking Polaroids of himself? Um, And he winds up being both like throughout moment to moment almost in the in the movie um and i think that winds up being really kind of unsettling uh and makes the movie work in a weird way it really does it's like tom ripley midlife crisis mode essentially yes it's you know he's got the charisma he's got the danger but he's looking for a friend Right. And uh, he's kind of reevaluating what's brought him to this point, sort of like maybe that would be Hopper could dial right into that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And in a weird way, that's even fitting with like those that stage of the Ripley books like that 
time that I've read where he's he's way more panicked and always yeah. terrified of getting found out. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so, yeah, he has those like um, he still has some of those smooth edges. But like you said, they're they're starting to fray right there. Mm-hmm. Like there's a tr- there's desperation kind of creeping in. Um, and um, yeah. And like the he is most of the scenes that he's in it's always him walking up to somebody else right like he's approaching people to hang out with or to be uh, to either give him what he needs or to be uh be friends with him yeah yeah it is a lonelier stranger uh ripley and he is so good opposite bruno gans because you can see the humanity uh beneath them you can see them kind of connecting but also Ripley is playing him a little bit. It's, yeah, it's a great performance. And then, you know, you contrast that loneliness and kind of that sense of regret that we see then in Rumblefish, which watching that one again this week, it kind of reminded me of, um, I mean, Peter Fonda got to play somebody much more gregarious in The Limey, but someone with regret who's using stories, like a lot of the stories he tells in The Limey are Peter Fonda just telling his own stories Hopper is a quieter. I mean, I think he's on screen less than 10 minutes in this, but Mm -hmm. the stories he's telling in character do seem to be full of pain and you need that sense of somebody who lived through the Easy Rider era or that whole uh, sphere that uh, Hopper lived to bring it to us. So talk to me about Rumblefish. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I like the way that you're phrasing that, too, because there he does become one of those actors who is very conscious of the baggage, both good and bad, that he's going to bring just by having his presence in a scene. And, you know, and plenty of other actors have grown into this, too. And he sometimes tips into there's parts of his career where he's like leaning on that as a caricature and it's like a, you know, clearly a paycheck movie or something like that. But mm-hmm. then there's other times like this one where he knows, okay, wait, if I bring that weight, then that's going to make my job so much easier and it's going to make the movie work. And um, yeah, just contrasting like the weight in that, the weight that he's bringing, the weight that you sense is in motorcycle boy in Mickey Rourke's yes. role. And then you have rusty James sort of looking at, two different versions of his potential future, like where he's going to end up. And um, I mean, they're both totally broken and, and sad guys. Um, But there's this in both of them, but like, I think it's, it's striking in the scenes with Hopper, particularly the one in the bar, like just how fragile he is. Mm -hmm. It seems like he could like, get shattered with like just a glance uh, that yeah. he would just fall apart Someone looks at you wrong and yep it would just destroy him yeah yeah and he and then he starts telling those stories um that are almost i mean they're not good i mean they're not happy good stories no. but he is almost like describing them in this romanticized language it's bittersweet you know? yeah yeah and is. you're like geez that's all this guy has right yeah. like and then there's this sort of like all he's got are the he has to make it seem nice because that's that's it right and then mm-hmm. he, the way he like when mickey rourke sits down and you the the camera the lingers on him yes and you see this look in his eyes of like absolute admiration like he's looking mm-hmm. at the motorcycle boy like rusty james looks at him and like yeah. the whole town looks at him and it's just heartbreaking like how how raw and um and 
and sort of open he is um through all of it um that's yeah that really got to me um this time yeah. this time around um and i guess i looked on the kind of in the timeline it seems like this is roughly about when he enters uh, or when he goes and gets sober um is it seems like it's right around 1983 when the movie's made and so it's like there's a some of that rawness like it just seems like he's coming in completely um ragged and at his you know at his worst um yeah and then and reckoning with yeah what he needs to do yeah and i think um you mentioning those stories and him kind of saying it in a romantic way part of it is because he's telling it to his sons and he's very aware of the family angle but then as you were saying that i kept thinking about harry dean stanton in Paris, Texas, yeah. talking to Nastasia Kinski in the Peep Show booth, and the way that he's telling these stories, you know, has this sort of um, romantic angle, even though they're they're desperate portraits of you know pain and anguish and trauma, and um, it's kind of a similar thing. And being mm-hmm. that it's vendors, and vendors did American Friends, so yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, I I haven't seen it I haven't seen Paris, Texas in a bit. Um, but yeah, it's um I definitely think that like there's that the shot of Hopper walking down the the hallway in the apartment yes. when he first shows up. It almost like from far away, it's almost like it looks like he's definitely carrying Harry Dean Stanton kind of stature yeah. and vibes, right? <laughs> I mean, he's not walk he's much more walking in like that kind of hang dog, yeah, broken thing that you get pretty much consistently from Harry Dean Stanton and you get it sometimes from Dennis Hopper. Yes, um, when yeah. When he lets but, down the bravado and yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's, that's exactly what it is, right? Where he's the most interesting to me is when this guy who can be volatile and who can be um, like just such a wild card completely drops all the posturing almost out of like exhaustion like in both of these movies yeah i mean american friend you see him like he carries he brings it up in fits and starts but ultimately he's just like i just can't carry this anymore like i can't do this and here's who's here's who i really am uh and then you you have to it's i mean you can't it's painful to watch but it's also really hard to look away because yeah he's just so completely vulnerable and present in what he's doing especially that um was that, that shot in the american friend where he's underneath the pier right after yes. the the car crashing he's like just clutching this pier and looking basically right into camera and it's mm-hmm. oh it's so haunting it really is covering. i mean i i love that uh, i love that shot like i don't know if it's a tchotchke or what you would call it that little photograph that oh, that he, he plays from. with. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's so like it makes kind of two faces depending upon how you bend it. And I don't know, this time around, I was like so excited. I was like, God, that that's Tom Ripley, right? That, that's his performance of Ripley in this movie is right. You it bend is. it, you bend it this way, and he's one guy in another way. And it's it's it, they he he switches them on and off as quickly as as that uh as that tchotchke um does. And I, I thought that was, uh, and that also sort of seems like how the, how the movie works too. Like it's as you know, like, you're kind of watching the movie, trying to figure it out and what, what it's doing the same way that you're watching Hopper and trying to figure him out, like the weird tonal shifts and the, um, yes. you know, as kind of that sort with of that stuff. Toy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the, um, kind of the stuff about like the other directors in the movie and things like that. Like, I mean, there, cause there's what, there's like, um, Nick Ray, there's Sam Fuller, there's mm-hmm. Jean Eustache, and then you've yeah. got, uh, Hopper. Um, and this time around, I was realizing, oh, well, at a certain point, he is, 
he Tom Ripley in that context is like he's the he's a director directing Jonathan or right? directing Bruno Gans like to get a performance out of him to go you know do this hit um, essentially yeah. um, and then he, that whole thing on the train where he like shows up it's like oh I've got a I've got to help him and set. I got to fix this because the performance isn't working and they have that um, that kind of scene together. I thought, oh, this is like this whole movie is about like, film, filmmaking and directing. And um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just so good. I can't I almost wanted to when I was watching it the other night, like it was too late, but I wanted to like I'm I want to start this over from the beginning, like right away. Um, it's yeah. I, I, I love I love it when you can like come around on a movie that much where like the first time you saw it, you're like, yeah, I don't know. But then something kind of keeps nagging at you yes. enough to like, I need to look at this again. I think I missed something. And then you realize, oh, boy, did I did I ever miss stuff? And then then it's really fun. It is. And it is such a love letter to filmmaking. It's even dedicated to Henri Langlois. So, mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. perfect. Next, Mitchell Beaupre. I mean, what's what's not to like about a cowboy in Hamburg, right? Yes, perfect. <laughs> yeah, I think I mean, I love that you that you shouted out the Nicholas Ray because it's so fun seeing them together on screen, like knowing their backstory and like the very contentious backstory that the two yes. of them have together. Um, yeah, I mean, the American Friend. I I know that this is a movie that you have a like a long love for, just like mm -hmm. I do, which I've always very much appreciated about you because it was the first Vin Vendors film that I ever saw. Oh, and really? It blew my mind when I saw it. Like, I had never seen anything that looked or felt like it. And I just love the way that Vendors, like, as he does with so much of his films, he takes, like, the European sensibilities, but he has this, like, great, like, relationship with American culture and American cinema, and he fuses them together so beautifully. Like, something like Paris, Texas is him going, like, the other route of being, you know, yeah. this European making a movie that feels like the, like, iconic, you know, quintessential American film. And then American Friend is placing Hopper, who is such an American figure in this European like espionage world, but centered on Bruno Ganz's character, who is, you know, a, a terminally ill man who gets sort of duped by Hopper and the guys that Hopper is working for into committing murder or, you know, this plan to commit murders, which become, you know, spirals more and more out of control. And I think that Hopper is such a great like fulcrum point of the movie where he rides right in that center between the humanity that Gans is and the like sort of like outro like espionage spy kind of over the top like you know real movie cinematic kind of quality yeah. of the storytelling and Hopper works because he he comes in he's our entry point to it at the beginning and then he kind of like weaves in and out and disappears a little bit through the middle section but then comes back at the end and like the final section and i love him just as like a bookend in this movie because you get him playing really cool and really like mysterious and very like very like close to the vest he's not like you said like hopper has this reputation as a very like over the top guy like people mm -hmm. who don't know his like wider filmography you know the speeds and the blue velvets and everything where he is very bombastic and very like exaggerated but the american friend he's really chilled and yeah. it's it, it it's really mysterious like it's, it really makes you lean into what he's doing and question like who this guy is like what his motives actually are how much he's really invested in these guys that he's working for and how much he cares about gans because that relationship is really like such a core of what that movie is it really is. And I think you brought up, you know, um, as far as him being the fulcrum, he's also kind of the entry point for the genre. 
You mm-hmm. go in knowing it's a thriller and you think, oh, it's just going to follow this guy. And, you know, we've seen so many movies of this mode that we're just assuming he's going to be, you know, this brilliant baddie or something. Mm-hmm. And then not expecting him to be like on a pool table taking pictures of himself <laughs> and kind of sad and like, you know, a little clingy with Gans. And yeah. we're not really sure. Is he playing him? Does he really care? Or what is going on with it? And I think you need somebody like Hopper. Exactly what you were saying about Blue Velvet, where there's a sadness there. There's kind of um, he's playing all of these different elements at once. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because he has he has a, a turn in the movie where, you know, his heart kind of gets the better of him. And like you just said perfectly, like you question is is this guy for real? Is he still playing him? Like, is this mm-hmm. is this sincere? And I think Hopper is perfectly situated to be able to convince in that. I think it's a really difficult turn for somebody to make and to make convincingly, especially as somebody who we hadn't like when he has that turn, we haven't seen him in a while. But it yeah. feels like it feels like a relief. Like when you do see him again, when he does come back into the picture, you question whether you're like relieved that he's there or if you're kind of terrified that he's there because you don't know, is this guy going to make it better? Is he going to make it worse? And you care so much about Gans, like his performance, Gans's performance is, I think one of the all time greats and Hopper is like reliably there supporting him and guiding him through it, just like he is the audience. Yeah. And I love that it's also about forgeries and paintings Mm -hmm. and what is real and what isn't, because that's kind of what he's playing, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What is true or not. Yes. Yeah. I also love that he's like he's playing Tom Ripley in it, which is the Patricia Highsmith character that we've seen in the talented Mr. Ripley, Ripley's game and everything. And I love watching it, too, like. Obviously, this came out 20 years before Talented Mr. Ripley, but I love watching it with like a feeling of it being an older version of like who Matt Damon's playing in that because there is like you can feel like watching it with that in mind. You feel like a backstory of this guy and like a past that he's like working with. And there's also the like a queerness kind of within him and like Mm -hmm. how like you said, he's really clinging on to Gans and like in those scenes with the two of them in Gans's workshop there is like a sexuality that's kind of being transferred mm-hmm. especially from Hopper to Gans that I don't think that a lot of actors would play the way that Hopper does play because he really like yeah he's very like low-key with it he doesn't like push it too hard but it definitely feels there yeah it does feel like he's kind of sussing him out especially with the the gift of the provocative mm-hmm. uh you know, picture trying to see like, is this turning him on or like, Mm -hmm. what is his own vibe a little bit? And so it does feel like guys trying to figure each other out a little bit. There's (laughs) there's that coded element that Hopper kind of goes for. And you got to love that. Yeah. Yeah. He's so observant too. like, it's such a, it's such a passive character. I love the first scene with um, him and Gans, like in a room together where he's at, they're at like an art auction where Hopper is watching an art sale go down for this forged painting that Nicholas Ray's character made that Hopper is selling. And he can overhear Gans and Gans's like co-worker talking and Gans can clock right away that it's a forged painting and is explaining why it's a forged painting and everything. And you just see Hopper like listening in and yes. kind of picking up on who this guy is and that maybe this guy, you know, knows a little bit more than most of the people that they're that they're dealing with that they're trying to pull one over on. Yeah, it makes us more interested in who Gans is because we're seeing him through the the eyes mm-hmm. of Hopper, which makes it really exciting, I think. From Dennis Hopper Interviews, edited by Nick Dawson. This came from a piece by Mark Goodman, dated 1978. 
Quote, the last movie will not rehabilitate Hopper, but his performance in Apocalypse Now just might. That is to say, if Francis Ford Coppola's elephantine Vietnam epic estimated cost, 30 million plus, ever gets to the screen. For his part, Hopper is serenely convinced that it'll be the best movie ever made. We're under contract not to talk about it, he says, his enthusiasm rising. But Francis said he could promise me at least a nomination. It's going to be mind-shattering because Brando and I go toe-to-toe for 15 rounds. And you know what? Hopper leans forward with a glittering grin. I think I took the gorilla in Manila. He sits back, triumphant, his camera's eye already flickering over the scene at the awards ceremonies. I've never had a chance to go the distance with a great actor on equal footing. But this time I did, and I think I got him. End quote. Next up, Jordan Harper. Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be people who are much more uh, versed in Apocalypse now who will talk about him a lot more in that role. I, but that is another one where you're talking about a guy who's hanging out with an insane dictator in the jungle and you know, is a party to this like absolute insanity, but you like him the moment he shows up and you want to see what he's up to and and you kind of get it. And he has none of the, you know, malignancy that is, that is surrounding him. He's just there and he's existing (laughs) in this world. And isn't it crazy? Isn't this wild? And it is. And, you, you know, that's a very important character in movies like that to have like the one guy who can, kind of transition you into these worlds um yeah this is crazy jester almost yeah that's a great way of putting it yeah court jester um and i think that for me is is is, you know the other thing that i think of right away when i think of dennis hopper from dennis hopper interviews edited by nick dawson says excerpts from a piece by alex simon dated 2008 quote let's talk about apocalypse now what are some of your memories of being in the philippines doing that answer i was there for four or five months when i arrived i was signed to play a cia agent there was no script so i started out in a clean uniform being told by francis coppola that i was going to be second in charge to marlon brando's army he had in the jungle I was with these guys about three weeks, and we were training with these Green Beret guys who'd just gotten out of Vietnam playing war games. We had mortars that we'd play with that were full of powder, and if you got any of the powder on you, that meant you were dead. We had all these war toys we'd play with at night. We'd be assigned to hold a bridge. Would they be coming by the sea? Would they be coming through the jungle? We'd play these incredible war games and just had a ball. Finally, Marlin arrived and everything was shut down for a week because he realized Marlin hadn't read Heart of Darkness. So Francis went out to read Marlin Heart of Darkness and 900 people, the cast and crew, just sat and waited. We called it the million dollar week because Marlon was getting paid a million dollars a week. When he came back, he said, Marlon and I agreed that your part should be as large as his or maybe larger. When you read Heart of Darkness, you never actually see the Kurtz character. You only hear about him being talked about by this Russian Jewish trader who 
comes out with shrunken heads and thinks he's such a great man. So Francis wanted me to play that part and made him a photojournalist who carried a lot of cameras instead of shrunken heads. So we started there and wrote a little bit in the morning and then would just improvise off of that. Question. So those scenes between you and Martin Sheen when he was locked in the bamboo cage were largely improvised? Answer, yeah. I mean, it was improv that came out of writing. Question. And you and Brando were never actually on the set together, right? Answer. Yeah. He'd shoot one night, then I'd do another. I came in one night and Francis said, Marlon called you a sniveling dog and threw bananas at you. So I had this prop man throwing bananas at me all night long. And that's how we worked for a couple of weeks. It was Marlon's decision for us to work separately. And at the time, I was sort of offended by it. But looking back, I think Marlon did me a big favor. If you're improvising something and he suddenly started reading Hollow Man by D.H. Lawrence, you really can't get something going if you have two people vying for the director's time. In the end, it worked out really well. End quote. Next, Blake Howard. Dennis Hopper's like a hero of New Hollywood. And so I'm obsessed with the kind of existentialist, cynical viewpoints that come out of that time. It's fascinating. It's interesting. It's he he was kind of the totemic figure of this time. You know, Easy Rider is the thing that then launched so many other films. Um, and you know, the the great book, Easy Rider and Raging Bulls, kind of caps New Hollywood, kind of 68 to you know, 68 to, uh, to 1980. And I'm very much a prescriber of that broad theory that it's kind of that, um, is New Hollywood and then it like falls away. Um, heaven's gate. Yeah, pretty pretty much (laughs) heaven's gate. Shout on New Hollywood for for many other reasons, but, but, you know, from a, from a, like a filmmaking perspective, philosophical perspective, socioeconomic perspectives, um, it it's the most fascinating and rich part of American cinema for me. So all of my filmmakers that I that are my guys, you know, whether they're Australian because we had our Australian new wave that you know broadly coincided with some of the American new wave. It sort of especially towards later, it took about a decade for us to get started, and so our late seventies, early eighties is actually the real purple patch in Australian new wave cinema. So yeah. I saw the George Millers and Bruce Beresfords and obviously Peter Weirs. So it's a it's for me it's truly the richest time in international cinema, especially Western cinema broadly. So Dennis Hopper was always this totemic figure for me and I loved him, but I've, he, he, it's this, it's, it's the film that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is the one that I think is, it's a masterstroke because it's almost so obvious. It's like, of course, Dennis Hopper is going to turn up in this movie. It's like (laughs) this drug addled, impressionistic kind of, I mean, almost like, you know, psychological immersion that is Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, which isn't really one of my favorite films that has ever been made. And I've watched Mm -hmm. it countless, countless times. But what I get out of it now, because he's such a totemic figure, is is Coppola and I don't know. I don't know if it was Coppola. I don't know if it was Milius. I would have to imagine that it's both. And I also think that much of it is Dennis Hopper himself as an individual is 
he becomes this entire meta commentary about the death of hope and the yeah. death of, I guess, the whole like summer of love, 60s possibility openness. And he becomes like a furious kind of lapdog of a psychopathic fascist. Yeah, it's and, the aftermath of We Blew It from yes. Easy Rider. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's 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 not it's not it's not like riding this into the sun. No. Um, one of the one of the lines is like, you know, we're not out with a bang, we're out with a whimper. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just I just love this performance because when he comes in, he just shakes this thing back to life and it's just like you see Willard talking to him and listening to him, and it crystallizes this thing that like Again, a magnetic, powerful, influential, seductive man has has with who's controlling and powerful has like imparted his worldview, has tattooed it onto people's bodies. And even a photojournalist who's meant to just like see reality for what it is has this drastically skewed perspective. And so I feel like in the world that we live in today, where you've got these characters on both sides of the, I guess, the political spectrum and then everything that's in between talking to each other. And sometimes it feels like there's this weird unreality. And like, even I very recently watched again, um, OJ made in America, which is like the best documentary about America in my mind, I think I've ever seen. And I was watching it and I was just like, like the hypocrisy, the, all of that stuff about people just should be seeing what is in front of them and the facts, and then all of the pervasive world around them, like mm-hmm. skewing that. He's just like again, he becomes a totem for like the beginning and the end of this era because Apocalypse lands in seventy nine, so it's pretty much borderline to the eighties and Raging Bull being the last film, even though it was being made in seventy nine. But I just every time I watch it, I'm just blown away because he's so fun and he's such a good actor and he's clearly off his mind on drugs and mm-hmm. he can barely retain a line he's there just like everyone in this movie. it's like the movie <laughs> that taught people that you could only remember shit if it was written on a giant piece of cardboard and held like Marlon just out Brando of frame. style yes. <laughs> yeah Brando's <laughs> just out of frame of the camera so you can like be looking cuz i can't remember a damn line um i i love that for this movie i love him for this movie i love everything about it so when i think about hopper i can't get past this i know that people have their easy riders and things like that and i know people have you know um, blue velvet and blue velvet of course yeah. right you know even speed you know, yes. I love, you know like a little bit of late mean hopper but yeah i can't get past this movie it's too good it's it's so big the movie's so big and he's just so big in it and such a vital character that for me, it's just like, I don't understand how we could have, you know, how this isn't the role, how this isn't the perfect role in his career. And, and I, I mean, there's so many other things as a filmmaker and as a huge talent, et cetera, but I just look at this and I go, this is such a meta commentary role for a guy who's only really been in his career for 10 years. And he comes in and gives like, the equivalency of like a Clint Eastwood unforgiven performance about his era and mm-hmm. about his life and about his legacy. And he does it in a, you know, he lived hard. So he did it in an age span of 12 <laughs> years and in 12 years, he can just like incisively cut through to that. And I think that, you know, that collective of Coppola and, and Milius and then 
himself and then all of the energy that is accumulating on this set and this wild thing and the flux of like, we have no idea how the fuck this movie is going to end. Everything about him in this is just perfect. And I love him. And so, and not only is the performance great and every single frame of it that he's in, in whatever version, Redux, Final Cut, the original theatrical release. It's Coppola. There's a million versions. Yeah. At least he keeps them all cataloged onto cool collections. We love that. Yeah, um, none of this Cohen Brothers stuff where they delete them. Come on, or Lucas. I, yes, I hate that shit. Oh, Jen, don't yes. get me started. I'm gonna, start talking. I'm gonna start talking like Hopper. Yeah. I'm gonna get the hands about Come how on, mad. Man. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a reckoning. It's a late '70s, like get last gasp before we get into the '80s and the me decade and the Reagan years. Kind of reckoning what we did in Vietnam. A good marriage of the Conrad book. And what Coppola wanted to say, I think also because the war was over, we could address it in certain ways. I mean, we knew the writing was on the wall early enough, but I think enough time had gone by that we can really take a look at it. You mentioned the hands. I think this is one of my favorite intros, definitely for Hopper. It is like the (sighs) intro for the The guy. The intro of his career. Yeah, it's like what Nicholson's intro in Easy Rider is like. That's this intro of Hopper. I mean, he just comes out like a bat out of hell or some being from another planet. He can barely keep his energy in check. Those hands are going everywhere. I'm a big, I talk with my hands. And so I loved Nero and people who use their hands like nonstop. And boy, Hopper loves it. He loves to punctuate sentences with the word man or put these <laughs> like Christopher Walken strange beats. I'm places. fucking splitting Jack. Yes. These weird <laughs> emphases <laughs> and beats and, I mean, zap him with your siren, man. It's like one of the first things. Or I'm an American. And I love the line about, like, if I only had words, man. And it was after he'd talked, like, for five minutes straight. It's great. Yeah. And and there's Shane as well, just like, wide-eyed and absorbing him. He's just like, I am not ready for this energy. I'm not no. ready for what you're trying out. But it's also the composition. Like, are you giving me another heart attack here? No. <laughs> Sheen's having multiple contiguous yeah. heart attacks that just keep going. Um, the But that introduction, of course, it's like all this, you know, stoic, you know, tribal, unmoving, massive, like, you know, hive mind. And then out of the like side of frame, hey, he's just like, I'm an American. <laughs> like he just comes out. It's hey. so good. And you're like, oh my God, like I, it's just another layer of, it's impossible to imagine for anyone who's seen Apocalypse Now probably as many times as you and I have. It's impossible to imagine how affecting that is. But the first couple of times you see this movie, you just can't believe the peeling of the next layer of what the movie is going to reveal to you. Mm-hmm. And everything is unexpected and everything, every new element, especially as we're heading towards the crescendo of the movie is just going one layer of crazy. And then hey man like he comes out and you're like oh you get like a little bit of relief but it's also then through the haze and distraction of his like craziness and like coke speak um it's you're like oh this is actually much bigger this is a much bigger commentary and it has a real purpose and it's like you know the genius that is walter merch the editor who essentially saved this film um yeah. you're like there's not much hopper that's on the cutting room floor there's a lot of him oh no. They, don't, they they need every beat that he's going to give here. 
Yeah, and Coppola knows that, especially after working with him. I watched Rumblefish yesterday, and I'm going to be talking to um, people about that one, too. But that movie, probably 10 minutes or less of Hopper, max. But, you know, he he's like a, a life preserver in that movie when it needs it at the exact same spot. It's a different energy. He's kind of a sad sack. It's melancholy. But Coppola knows this is the guy you're immediately going to be, like, tuned into. And that started here. Yeah. Next, Travis Woods. Francis Ford Coppola's Rumblefish, which is probably my favorite Coppola film. Uh, Hopper gives a very, is a very small performance, very small role, excuse me, in that film, uh, uh, playing kind of a a dad who knows he's fucked up as as a he's a father who knows he's fucked up as a father, which is not the first time Hopper's played that kind of role, but he does it with such a weird, nervy, quirky art house sensibility to meet the form of the film, which uh, was basically Coppola trying to make an art house existentialist film for teenagers. And uh, Hopper totally was in down for that and, and meets the challenge of that in a way that is so interesting and fascinating to watch. He's also very good at, you know, he, he was a bad dad and out of the blue, he was a bad dad in Rumblefish. And it, it's funny how each of his bad dad roles get increasingly mournful with each successive bad dad yeah, like movie. Hoosier. As if he's playing this as if he's playing the same bad dad who's I just know. whose regrets are accrued. Blake Howard. God, that's a beautiful movie too. Such a different energy. Yeah. But I I I kind of love brash, brazen, big. Yes. I, I love it. Man. <laughs> big. I sorry. Sorry, I like loud and funny things. Like it's just <laughs> great. It's like and you know, you you only have to be you watch like Tropic Thunder and movies that piss take this as stuff and hot shots and like they owe a hell of a lot to the energy that Dennis Hopper brings to Apocalypse. Oh god, now. yeah. I feel I feel like they're all like trying to get a bit of hopper. You know, they're all trying to get the hands and have all this accoutrement as I'm um you know, prop dress for you today, but they want to have this yes. stuff, so it's like him. And no, it, it it's a spe- like it's as I said, it's it's a masterpiece, but like yeah, absolutely is. Un- undeniable. It's one of my favorite films. I've watched it a million times and I could watch it a million more. And I, and I was watching segments of him talking, just thinking about all this stuff, trying to add something to the gush other than just like doing the impression over and over again. Hey man, you don't talk to the Colonel, you know, like I just like, I didn't want to, you listen. Um, uh, I didn't want to start. I am start so just, worried. <laughs> I'm going to like, by the end of this thing, just completely slide into Hopper. This yeah. is what I want. This is what I want to tell you. That is not a problem. That's actually awesome. From Dennis Hopper interviews edited by Nick Dawson, a piece from author Mark Goodman dated 1978 quote later as we drive through the eerie star-swarmed new mexican night hopper reflects on his post-revolution phase i've been doing a college lecture tour he says i hit a few schools show the last movie then open the house to questions besides trying to get a feel about the film I'm also interested in seeing what people feel in the universities these days. After all, we're not trying to stop a war anymore. I thought it would mean they could work harder and not be bothered, but I found they're a little bored. They want a cause to come along. They ask me, what are we supposed to do? You're supposed to be our spokesman. So I tell them, look, 
Don't you think I'm a little old to be your spokesman? I'm 42, for Christ's sakes. Why don't you just study and have a good time? See, I have no bones to pick anymore, no chip on my shoulder. And it's not just because I'm older. Look, I think Jane Fonda and I won the war. But I'm not going to run for the fucking Senate. For me, it's over. And hell, I can't say that my politics hurt me in Hollywood. It was probably my own dogmatic personality. Hopper pulls out a cigarette and lights up. That and the headlights are the only terrestrial glimmer in the dark, brooding night. Anyway, I think I'm best at social commentary, not political commentary. Know what I want to do most? I want to make a linear movie with a beginning, middle, and end. I want to make a film that people want to see. I think of last movie as being a palette. It showed all my colors and strokes. Now it's time for a movie that folks can follow and enjoy. End quote. And part two, focusing on his popular 80s phase of movies that people can follow and enjoy and quote endlessly, like Hoosiers, Blue Velvet, and more, will be coming up next. So make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.